you know we're at, we're at a period in civilization where uh, everything's on fire it's heating up or it's flooding or it's burning or it's or, or you know we're locked up because of pandemics all this is, is a direct result of how we treat nature and uh, you know we, we, we're quick to try and find band-aid solutions to the problems we faced uh, while ignoring uh, uh, a solution that's spent the last five billion years evolving and that is nature it, it's the best regulating system we have on this planet we can't afford to keep treating nature as a garbage dump uh, we can't afford to keep thinking that we are uh, on top of the food chain because we're not. You know, we, you know, we're part of a system that is that is breaking, it's failing, and it's, it's starting to, to to shake its tail. And uh, it's a system that's been around a lot longer than us, and it's a system that will survive us. Uh, nature is not the endangered one here; it's, it's us. Uh, if we don't understand that, then we're gone. Hello and welcome to the Plant Paradigm Podcast where we have inspiring conversations with amazing individuals from all around the world and look for ways to create a clean, green and sustainable future for us, the planet and all beings. I'm your host, Tom Simak, a fellow plant eater and athlete here to help facilitate those conversations. Who you just heard is Damien Manda. But just before I get into the episode, I wanted to implore people, for those who haven't and do enjoy this podcast, leave a review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast or on YouTube, you can like, comment, subscribe, all the good stuff. But it really does help out the show a lot just by doing that one small act. I really appreciate it. Now on to today's conversation. Damien is an activist and founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. He has a unique background in that he's a former Australian Royal Navy clearance diver and special ops military sniper. His work has been featured on The Guardian, ABC, Nat Geo, Forbes, and The Game Changers, which a lot of people listening to this show might be familiar with. He's also the recipient of the 2019 Winsome Constance Kindness Gold Medal, a prestigious international recognition for services to animals and humanity. We're going to be talking about poaching quite a little bit, and in particular, the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, the grim reality of the situation, making a difference, a positive difference in this world, and being an optimist. I'm sure you guys will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. But with that being said, I will see you on the other side. Damien, welcome to the Plant Paradigm Podcast. How are you going? Tom, beautiful, mate. Yeah, thanks very much for having us on today. Oh, mate, it's absolute. Oh, yeah, for sure. Look at this beautiful background for those watching on YouTube. It's absolutely incredible where you are. Um, <laughs> speaking of which... I really can't do your general background justice, so I thought the best way to start this conversation for everyone who might not know who you are, could you give us a bit of a one-on-one on who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah, absolutely, mate. Uh, Damien Manda, uh, born in Melbourne, raised uh, on the east coast of Australia, uh, joined the military age 19, uh, was a clearance diver in the Australian uh, Navy, and then went on to serve uh, with what was in the 2nd Commando Regiment uh, in Tactical Assault Group East as a sniper, uh, private contractor in Iraq for three years. Uh, in 2008, um, I had a sabbatical year off trying to figure out what next in life, uh, which led me to Africa. And 
landed here at the beginning of 2009 and, and haven't looked back. Uh, uh, founded the IPF uh, in October 2009 after seeing the injustices done to animals and uh, being in a, I suppose, a unique position with the skills I had from the military and the money I'd been able to uh, save or generate through residential property investment in Australia. Uh, and formed the IAPF International Anti-Poaching Foundation. Um, and uh, 13 years later, uh, we've trained rangers that help protect uh, over 20 million acres of, uh, of wilderness across the continent. Um, we have a staff of over 500 people. Uh, we have uh, around eight and a half million acres uh, under contract that we are directly responsible for managing and protecting. And uh, onwards and upwards, it's been a uh, one hell of a ride, <laughs> mate. There is so much we can jump in there. Uh, I actually didn't know you were born in Melbourne, so that's an awesome surprise. Um, Mornington boy, yeah. Oh, you're Mornington. Wow. Okay, so Mornington. you're a so little bit snobby. Grass, if I say grass <laughs> during the during the session, you'll probably you like, oh, he's from Mornington. Oh, yeah. I didn't get the snobby vibe from you actually. So mate, I was I was from Mornington, and Mornington was still a little fishing village. Um, really? you know, before went all cafe latte. <laughs> to be fair, Mornington has some great vegan places now, so I can't give yeah. them too much crap. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so most of the community, that's an incredible story. And most of the community here probably knows you from either IAPF and the work you do there, or I guess most commonly this documentary that took the world by storm, the game changers. Right. And so... I thought I'd start with the IAPF for a second because you mentioned poaching and, you know, that's a string that a lot of well, vegans are just very triggered when it comes to that stuff. And I think a lot of people, and actually, no, I'm going to take back the fact that I said vegans, because everyone hates poaching, right? It's just a common thing. Nobody's actually, no, there's a small minority, but I'm, I'm sure love it. But from what I see on social media, what is just like a dead rhino in the savannah with the horns cut off is that actually the reality of what goes on so there's there's a couple of different dynamics uh uh working in here uh one is subsistence poaching so that's people just trying to poach to eat uh to feed their family then there's people that are trying to do that same thing trying to poach more and more uh to not only feed their family but to turn it into a business um where it starts Ebbing into the commercial side of, of poaching, and then you've got the you know the organised crime commercial side of poaching, which is your elephant tusks, your, your animal skins, your, your rhino horns. Uh, yeah, there's there's hundreds of thousands of different animal items that are used around the world. Uh, but um, yeah, the, the premise of it is yeah, it's it's uh, you've, you've got something of value running around areas the size of small countries uh, and people that want to get their hands onto it. So. Uh, you need rangers out there protecting those those natural resources, whether they be trees or, or rhinoceros or, or flowers or rocks or water. Uh, these are these are all resources um, that provide ecosystem services to us humanity, uh, and we rely upon them. And uh, you know, small you know small, small minority groups will, will try and take advantage of that at, at the detriment of everyone else. Mm, definitely is a detriment. Something I heard recently that I think rings true to this is when we think of land, whether it's real estate or generally with farming, especially with monocropping, and I think that fits into poaching is think not what the land can do for you, but what you can do for the land. Yeah. Um, and especially when it's these resources, it's just, is it 
like even lucrative for people to go out and poach? Like, is there a lot of profit in the game? Uh, yeah, look, some, some of them are very successful and have been success, successful for a number of years. Uh, and that's the reason they keep doing it. They're able to uh, uh, evade uh, authorities and ourselves and, uh, and build a, a good in- income or in some cases an, an empire from it. There's varying levels. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's, it's not too dissimilar to the drug trafficking trade. Uh, only the, the difference is with drugs, the damage is done at the end of the uh, cycle. Uh, whereas with uh, wildlife poaching, the damage is done at the beginning. So are you actually, when you're going out, and we'll talk a bit more about the process, I suppose, as we go on, are you actually seeing stuff like this happen? Because you're saying, actually, I'm going to backtrack for a bit. You're saying they're evading what you guys can do or see. How are they evading? Is it like midnight runs? Like how are they actually doing that? So, I mean, poaching is done in different ways. Some poachers will use wire snares. So these are these these, these wire traps that they'll they'll go and rip fences down or telephone wires down and they'll set these these loops up over these these paths that the animals are used to get to water points or away from water points and they get stuck in these snares and they the more they struggle, the, the more they tighten. Uh, of course, weapons, you know, using rifles, um, using poison darts, um, spears, um, uh, using cyanide is a common one that we see, particularly uh, here in Zimbabwe. Uh, they put cyanide in cabbages or in oranges or watermelons, and, and elephants love those, so they'll, they'll go and eat them. And the, the catastrophic effect from uh, all the predators that come in to feed on uh, a carcass that's been killed from cyanide, uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's devastating. Um, so, yeah, look, uh, look our, our objective is to be able to build up systems that stop poaching from happening uh, and build up communities that don't want to see it happening. And so I suppose the, the long arc of, of my realisation in conservation is that conservation isn't just a conservation issue, it's a social issue. And you've got to deal with many of the social aspects that are happening in the communities that, that parallel the areas we're trying to protect. Um, previously, we'd just come out with this very sort of staunch approach. You know, we're going to be the last line of defence, and if you come in here, there's going to be trouble, and you know that type of thing. And you know, you know, good guys with guns out there, you know, between the animal and the poacher, and the poachers are coming across sometimes in, in, in groups of a dozen or more um, with automatic rifles and heavy caliber weapons, often often from a different country, crossing crossing these borders, coming in, doing a raid. Uh, killing a bunch of elephant or, or, or rhino and then and then ducking off out of the country uh, unseen and back on their own territory. So, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, over the years uh, we came to learn that if, uh, if we could focus on some of those social aspects, then we would have the community on side. And in getting the community on side, we had the most powerful weapon there was. Uh, and that was the, the positive will of the people, uh, the hearts and minds and, and uh, and I should jump forward a little bit uh, into into our program here and what started in Zimbabwe, Akashinga, which is a all-female teams of, of ranger units. Um, in a way, a small team of, of women here have achieved what few armies or police forces in history uh, have been able to do, and that is win the hearts and minds of the local population. Mm, it's so fascinating because when you when you just say that, you think armies and these huge units have uh, political power, they have this money, but they don't have that connection to community. So when we're looking at these 
you know, winning the hearts and mind and these social issues, how does poaching negatively impact these communities over there? So a lot of the poaching isn't done necessarily by the communities directly alongside uh, these areas. A lot of, a lot, in particular, the, the commercial side of poaching, it's, it's gangs that are moving in uh, from other areas and crossing through those communities. Uh, a lot of communities rely on organisations uh, like us to be doing some sort of community work or employment work in there, whether it be through tourism or through conservation. Uh, so if there's no animals to conserve or, or area to protect, then there's there's already there's no jobs. And and when there's no jobs uh, or no project to be run, then you start looking at all the all the subsequent other jobs that would be there: uh, roads, uh, construction work, uh, working in the communities, uh, doing various programs. We work in healthcare, water, sanitation, education. Uh, infrastructure development so all of those things they sort of you know if, if we can't show a positive trend upwards in terms of vegetation um, and wildlife populations increasing uh, then there's no point us being there you know it's it's it's, it's not a winnable uh, battle that we're fighting uh, and so the, you know the community you know we they're, they're our main partners we work with the community to to, to try and walk that line and and, and get uh, them in a place where they see the long term benefits of, of wildlife conservation, not the short term benefits of of uh, what uh, killing an animal and, and feeding it uh, to a, to a small mm. group of people may mean overnight. So you mentioned at the beginning that there was like these different forms of poaching, right? And one of them was substance, and that is this kind of really grey area um, issue that. I guess you, some cultures or some tribes hunt for substance, such as like the Inuit, such as the Hazda and, and things like this. Are you, when you're going out there and you're seeing, or even the Akashinga women, when they're going out there and they're seeing these poachers, are they staying clear of people who would hunt for substance per, uh, purposes? So look, the, the least fun part of, of what we do is, is having to arrest people. Uh, uh, most of the areas that we're taking over, uh, we're taking over because they've, they've been left vacant. Um, they're former trophy hunting blocks. Uh, and so this, this is one of the unique parts of our model is that we, we uh, you know, we're not actually going head to head with the trophy hunting industry. We're, we're recognizing that as an industry, it is in decline and we are moving in to uh, partner with local communities to help them manage their own areas and empower them to, to make those areas work. The thing is, when we when we do come in, most of those animals have been shot out uh, of those areas, and that's why they're of no commercial value to, to hunters anymore. Uh, so th- there's not a lot of of animals in in an area that we would initially get under contract, and that's why we enter into such long long term contract agreements with these communities that would span anywhere from twenty to ninety years. Uh, and that's because you know, as humans, we like to think in 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 convenient sort of ten and you know five and ten year. Like neat packages, but but ecological processes take decades and centuries uh, in some cases. So um, we need to be able to build the infrastructure, the legal infrastructure, and the on the ground operational infrastructure for these projects to supersede you know, me as a person, um, my lifetime, and, and make sure that they carry on into the future. Uh, so at some point, yeah, look, uh, we, we, I mean, well, in, in, in many of our areas that we have been in for, for, for some years now, we have seen wildlife populations dramatically increase. And we, we, uh, what that does lead to is human-wildlife conflict. 
uh, it's a conflict between the, the the animals that are living in these areas that come out and raid crops or kill cattle or kill 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 goats, or in some cases people. Uh, and so that's a constant battle that we're having to fight. And we, you know, we've got a brilliant team that works continuously on that. Uh, and I think you know while humans live uh, within nature, we're always going to have that challenge in one way or another. Uh, so it's, it's just a constant, um, it's not something you're going to eliminate, it's something you've got to manage. Mm. Well, is it like the, when you're saying like the, the killing of the humans really kind of popped out to me, is it like the shark thing where like 10 sharks kill humans a year, but we kill like 10,000 a minute, something like that? Like how often is that really a reason for people to go out to kill the animal because it's killed a human yeah look you know it's very i mean an animal it's very hard to sit down and get an opinion of an of an animal uh that feels uh like it's been hardly done by versus a community that's had someone killed or you know for example you know last year a chief's daughter taken by a crocodile uh you know there's, there's very little um reason to be had in those conversations it's uh it's uh, it's an unfortunate situation, and you know these are the types of things that we've got to sort of try and manage almost on a day to day basis uh, over here. And there's there's often no right decision. Uh, it's just mm. it's just um, you've got to make tough decisions, and you've got to make it for the greater good and, and the long long term preservation of your programs and um, and benefit ultimately of, of conservation and communities. They can only work hand in hand together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I've noticed actually in this short chat so far, where your mind goes when I ask a question is you seem to think quite long term. Um, and, and like you said earlier, humans like to think in these neat packages. And I'd say five and 10 years, you're giving them too much credit. We're thinking like six, 12 months, especially in, in other terms, maybe three years at, at the max. So how did you, I guess on a side question to what we're talking about, how did you learn to develop a mindset of thinking long-term because at the end of the day, that's what makes what you're doing and what we can do as a society sustainable is if we start thinking long-term. Yeah, I mean, look, it's just, I mean, it's right in front of us every time we switch on the news, uh, every time you, you in Melbourne more than anywhere else spent uh, almost two years locked up in, in your home. You know, we're, we're at a period in civilization where, uh, everything's on fire, it's heating up or it's flooding or it's burning or, it's, or, or you know, we're locked up because of pandemics. All this is, is a direct result of how we treat nature. And, uh, you know, we, we, we're quick to try and find Band-Aid solutions to the problems we've faced uh, while ignoring uh, uh, a solution that's spent the last five billion years evolving, and that is nature. It, it's the best regulating system we have on this planet. Uh, and just if we just give nature the space to do what it does best, uh, we're going to be in so much of a better place than where we are now and, and where we're heading. So you know, I, I'm I'm an optimist. Um, I've had I, you know I've had my fatalist phases, and and uh, you know where, where's all this going? But you know I like to think we're on the on the right track um, as a civilization. We've been pushed far enough into a corner that we we start to realise now we have to make changes. Otherwise, we're the endangered one. We're not at the top of the mm. food chain. We're part of a much bigger. Uh, bigger system where a system where species have come and gone for for, for billions of years uh, regardless of how dominant they may have, have thought they were uh, so you know we're not exclusive uh, in, in all of that 
And if we don't start to realise that, then you know, you know, pretty soon we won't be here. So mm. it's not just about nature, it's about humanity. Uh, it's about us being able to coexist, not being uh, apart from nature, but being a part of nature. Mm, I love that perspective of when you said no matter how tough they thought they were because humans have this tendency to over be overly confident in, in themselves and in, in humanity. And I love how you have hope. Um, and, and part of that hope, I'm assuming, is the fact that you've seen these wildlife numbers, say, in your edge of the world, start to actually rise um, in terms of the land that you're looking after. And I actually read on your website somewhere that in the sector that you're looking at, poaching has gone down 80% uh, since you guys started monitoring the area. Um, now, how do you track that? So we, we have a very good team of scientists. Uh, we have field-based um, apps that are uh, uh, on uh, ruggedized phones that are collecting data. All that data is going into systems that are being analyzed. We're able to see wildlife trends um, versus uh, kilometers patrolled in various areas. Uh, we do transects, uh, looking at wildlife spores, being able to count the, the amount of animals in different herds. We can also identify it. Uh, particular animals of, of species, if especially if they're critically endangered species. Uh, we have uh, camera traps that are set up in areas. So there's a whole monitoring and evaluation side that, that goes into what we do, not just in the in the wildlife side, but also the vegetation um, and the social development side, uh, as well as our own staff, uh, um, how we run the organisation. Uh, we operate uh, as a non-for-profit, so we want to be as effective as possible in using the limited funds we do have in the, in, in the most um, uh, pointed, laser-sharp way. Mm. It, when it comes to reducing that number even more of the, of the incidences of poaching, what's something that Dream Damien, like the No Limitations Damien, has wanted to implement but maybe hasn't had the resources or maybe the techni technological capabilities to do so yet? Yeah. Look, you know what? 80% downturn is is something I'm 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 happy with, uh, mm. and something because okay, let's let's just say you gave me let's say you gave me a million acres and it was going to cost me a million dollars a year to protect that 100%. Okay, there'd be no poaching coming in there. I'm just you're just using numbers here. Okay, mm. and let's say for half a million dollars, I could protect that to 80%. Okay. So you've still got wildlife populations increasing. You've still got vegetation that's protected and you've got communities that are satisfied. Okay, you then take that you then take that other $500,000 and you double the amount of area that's being protected. And that's that's our philosophy. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not about species in isolation. It's not about parks in isolation, but it's about pr protecting nature at scale. And that's why we uh, have been building some of the largest... Uh, single conservation landscapes within independent uh, or individual political boundaries uh, possible. Uh, looking at the connectivity of uh, large ecosystems, uh, areas that may have been fragmented. Think of an ecosystem as a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, an, an ecosystem may span you know, a thousand kilometres or more from east to west or north to south. Uh, the national parks in those ecosystems, they're the ones that are, that are nailed down <clears throat> to the table. They're nailed to the page. They're not going anywhere. They fall under a federal system. A lot of the other areas 
uh, are either privately owned or, or some of the smaller pockets are privately owned. The majority are actually owned by local indigenous communities uh, or held under a tribal or communal land trust. And the traditional economic model for them to generate income for those areas has been hunting, trophy hunting. And as the, with the decline of the hunting industry, um, our job is to be to, to come in and basically uh, go and sit down with the communities and say, listen, you know, we know this industry is, is going down. What if we could put the same amount or more money into the local community and more jobs as what hunting was doing? Would you be willing to offer us the same terms and conditions uh, as what you, you know, the, 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 the contracts that the hunters had done previously? Uh, look, you know, I, I think you and me have probably got the same, the same sort of uh, mindset in regards to the ethics around hunting. Uh, and I don't like it, but I don't like the fact that, that an international community has relied on that as the sole source of income for so much wilderness area across the continent. And we sit here and we jump up and down and say, hunting's bad, we've got to stop it. That may be so, but you've got to have an and what. You know, what next? Who's, you know, what, what are you going to do with an area where you just go, okay, that guy over there, he's an asshole, he's hunting. So we're going to stop all that over there. Uh, and the money that was coming in, whether it be small or whether it be big, it was something. And something's better than nothing. Uh, so if you go and switch that tap off, now the community sees no incentive to protect those trees, protect those animals. The trees get cut down, the animals get killed, uh, the water stops flowing, uh, the, the area will get turned into agricultural human settlement, and uh, then you have a fragmented ecosystem. So just remember that jigsaw puzzle. What we want to do is to make sure that that whole jigsaw, that, jig, that jigsaw puzzle remains whole. It doesn't become fragmented. Uh, and again, you know, it's, it's lucky we can get wrapped around the axles here on the ethics of hunting and whether it's good or bad. Or it's, it, 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 it actually doesn't matter. Uh, what, what does matter is it's in decline. There's more than twice as much land across the continent held under communal or tribal land trust in wilderness areas uh, than what there is national parks. And unless an alternative model to hunting is, is generated and implemented, these areas will be lost. So imagine if I, if I came to you and said, we're going to wipe out all of Australia's national parks. You'd be like, "Why? Well, that's that's not, it'd be unthinkable." Or what if I said I was going to wipe out that and then double it? Uh, and essentially, that's what's happening in Africa. Nobody's talking about it because it's these aren't these aren't they don't have the high, you know, the five star sort of tourism status as what uh, um, the national parks do uh, because they're they're often you know they're not they're not on the edge of Victoria Falls or they're, they're not. Uh, you know, these prime tourism spots, uh, they're often in the middle of nowhere, but they have the same biodiversity value and, and in many cases an even greater strategic value from an uh, ecological sense uh, because they surround national parks. They, they, they reform or, or sustain corridors. Uh, and they create that, that uh, genetic diversity uh, across wide landscapes. Uh, and so that, that for us as an organisation is, is protecting nature at scale. And, uh, you know, we've got big problems as a global community and big problems need big solutions. Uh, and that's why we have such uh, you know, a big vision of, of having 30 million acres under contract uh, by the end of the decade, uh, 30 million acres that will be protected that would otherwise have been lost. Uh, we did a... We did a, you know, a few, I was running a few calculations um, um, on the carbon storage of the trees that are currently in our portfolio at the moment. Uh, and this is our portfolio as it is, and another negotiation that we're going through at the moment. Uh, uh, if you were to add all the carbon stored 
uh, in the trees that are in those areas each year, it is the same the same amount of carbon that's released. It would be equivalent to switching off New York City, the entire, uh, all of New York City for 191 days a year. That's insane. So how many metric, do you remember the metric tons? Uh, no, I've got the calculations all sitting there. It's, a, it's, 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 it's the same as... Uh, 258,000 flights from Los Angeles to New York on a, with a 747 uh, with 524 people uh, on there. So it's, 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 a, it's, it's a lot of shit getting pumped out there. So, it, yeah. it, I mean, these areas, we, it's just such a rich, uh, rich um, you know, biodiversity and, and such rich ecosystem services that they provide that we overlook. And, and, and so often we look at just the intrinsic value. Oh, yeah, it's a the animals are beautiful, the trees great, or I love being in nature, but it's like, what is that mm. service providing to us? And it is, is something much, much beyond the intrinsic value that we, we often just see. So you mentioned before that this is possible, or at least the work you're doing is possible without, from, for about half of the African continent that are under like the tribal land ownerships. Now, what I'm curious about is, is this model... Also pertaining, could we do it in somewhere like Australia or somewhere like Canada or America or wherever else that that can protect this land, support the communities, and it's economically viable, it's sustainable, it's you know it ticks all the boxes. Look, it it is being done in 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 a number of areas, and we're definitely not exclusive to working with local communities to achieve a conservation outcome. I'd say where we are different in the conservation and environmental sector is that we centralised our community development um, program around women's empowerment. Uh, And women's empowerment gave us the greatest traction, um, pound for pound, dollar for dollar, uh, in in community development, uh, which then helped us uh, create these environmental or conservation outcomes. Now... Yeah, there's an overwhelming body of evidence that tells us empowering women is the single greatest force of positive change in the world today. Uh, for us as, as an organisation, uh, the majority of our employees um, are in a, a law enforcement or an operational role. So for us to be able to go and, and place, train women and place them, uh, uh, create those opportunities uh, into those roles, uh, it's it, it's turned the largest line item in, in our annual budgets, which is salaries for, for all these operational roles, into a direct community investment and a community investment that's not going in at any other level other than household level and into the hands of women who spend 80 to 90% of their salary on family and local community versus a, uh, a male that generally spends 30 to 40% operationally in the law enforcement side of what we have to do um, because there is a value and there is a threat. Um, there's a value on these animals and there's, there's a threat against them. Uh, uh, we, we cut our operational costs by two-thirds because women uh, have a very different way of approaching law enforcement. It's a, it's a natural de-escalation of tension uh, and it's, um, it's very much demilitarized what we once thought had to be a militarized operation. Demilitarized for us means no helicopters or drones or aircraft flying over military-grade hardware. We have something uh, far more important than military-grade hardware. We have um, interpersonal relationships that the women that have come from these communities 
that that their parents grew up in these communities that uh, they're raising their own families in that, that you know they have uh, this long-term vested interest uh, in the well-being of these communities and that that for us is is the most powerful part of the formula that, that we're doing so it's definitely uh, replicable and you know we've been advising other governments and other organizations um, around the world actually uh, on how to do it a lot of people think it's just a matter of going out and, and uh, you know getting the male ranges and, and and changing over and putting female ones in you know if you if you were to do that it would create its own uh, social and cultural dynamics that would be negative um, the areas we're taking over are often vacant um, they've been left um, or because they have no commercial interest uh, uh, they um, are in places that would, would probably not have had uh, any other uh, form of investment. So we, we sort of come in with a blank canvas and we're able to build these uh, strategies up uh, bit by bit over time and, and letting people uh, see the benefits and then come back to us and say it's something that they want to expand. Um, yeah. That's awesome. I When I first heard that it's majority women, or all women, sorry, the Akashingas, I thought in my mind it's like, oh, it's got to be based on Women are just more compassionate. And I guess that kind of comes in reality when you're looking at like interpersonal relationships and, and the uh, dynamic they can develop with the local communities. But that stat on the amount that they spend on their families is um, absolutely incredible. When you think about what really promotes a lot of disease and economic dis- disadvantage, the fact that children are not getting educated uh, efficiently in a lot of countries, Australia included, um, in some communities. So it's awesome that that can have such a big like waterfall effect on like you start with just uh, hiring women for this purpose of, for this role. And then it just affects every generation, um, downward. Did you think that it would make such a big impact when you made that decision? I look, no, we, we, we didn't. Um, it was, uh, you know, you know, we just sort of started and then figured it out as we went along and it wasn't, you know, you know where I was going with that before. We, you know, we couldn't just go and, and, and change uh, men out for women. We actually had to rebuild the organisation. Um, we had two independent gen- gender mainstreaming audits done on us as an organisation to see, you know, where our faults were and where we could improve um, everything from policy and procedure to board makeup, management, infrastructure, Um but then, uh, you know, as we as we kept building out the program, we just kept seeing more and more benefits uh, to to what we were doing. Uh, and I mentioned the the the, the operational costs being cut by two thirds per annum because of the the demilitarisation in terms of what we did. So the remaining money that we had left over, we went and reinvested it back into healthcare, education, water, sanitation, uh, infrastructure development. Now it seems like every dollar we spend in in the community is one or two dollars less we have to spend um, on the law enforcement or operational side of what we do. So um, it's been a, a very steep learning curve uh, for me, uh, but on, honestly, mate, the best one. Um, it's it's been fantastic, and we're still learning, we're still refining what we mm. we think is the best practice model. I think women, if given the opportunity, will save far more than than just Africa's ecosystems. But uh, at the moment, they're doing a bloody damn fine job. Yeah, for sure. And something that's also very unique is that they're plant-based. 
sometimes like a lot of these communities would be at least seasonally plant-based but when they come there they the food you serve is plant-based how how does that work yeah we've got a, a team of uh plant-based chefs working uh around the clock uh to serve operational teams that are out in the field 24 7 um we've got acres and acres of gardens we've got good supply chains set up um um, locally um, and regionally uh, and yeah we've got a, a team uh, of women um, doing one of the toughest jobs in the world in one of the most remote and, and hostile uh, locations on the on the planet uh, and they're kicking ass at it and they're doing it on a plant-based diet they've been doing it since so we started the program in, t- in 2017 uh, when we when we spoke to them about the reasons why uh, it was, uh, you know, we spoke about the ethics, um, uh, the environmental uh, component and, and the nutritional component of, of why we were doing this. Uh, you know, that's what we served at work. Uh, and what they do back home is completely up to them. The interesting thing is, is, is through this program we created Back to Black Roots, uh, is, um, it's the first step is teaching our staff, then their families, then the communities, and then building ambassadors. Uh, the, the the exciting thing about the program is that many of them retain this uh, this um, ethos, uh, this philosophy, going back uh, into their communities now, and it's yeah, we're seeing it spread. Mm, that's what are some of the meals that these women or, or that these plant based chefs are cooking up? Like, do you have certain staples that are just crowd favorites? Oh mate, geez, they've got a, a two-week <laughs> meal plan, and there's everything from curries to pastas to pizzas to burgers to chips. Uh, you know, some of these some of these patrols are walking thirty kilometres a, a day. They're uh, they've got to feed them a lot uh, to keep them keep them fueled up and, and going out there. And, and, and as I said, in harsh conditions, uh, and the Zambezi Valley floor sometimes hit you know, mid mid forty degrees uh, on a hot summer's day. So. Yeah, if you're doing a if you're doing a follow up on poachers tracks and you're three or four hours behind and you're trying to make up that time, it's uh it's it's uh, hard going. Yeah, I can imagine it would be incredibly difficult. And I wanted to circle back to the danger in a moment, but just to kind of put a pin on this one, did you have any pushback when you were saying this? We're actually not feeding you because everyone has their own beliefs and biases about what we should eat and. Yeah. I'm sure they, they weren't immune, but did anyone or any part of the communities push back to the ethos of eating plant-based? Uh, look, there's, there's always going to be some elements and it just comes down to education. Uh, fortunately, though, you know, there's a lot of the, the older uh, traditional structure there that, that, that still remembers that Africa was raised largely on a plant-based diet with meat reserved uh, primarily for ceremonial purposes. Uh, and so there's still a, uh, you know, it's you know many in many places it's it's migrated to this sort of fast food mentality, and uh, we have a lot of health subsequent health problems that come from that. And I don't think that's exclusive to Africa. I think we know we know this uh, all over the world. If you eat shitty food, you you get sick. If you eat good food, you get less sick. Uh, so uh, you know, and that's um, that's it's definitely well understood in, in the rural parts of Africa, and it's um, yeah, sometimes it's a, it's a it's a life choice. Sometimes it's uh, something that people don't have a choice uh, in regards to what they can get access to for food. Uh, these these food deserts. Yeah, it sounds like they are putting some insane work into the field there, 
And, you know, walking 30 Ks is, is not an easy task, let alone the 40 degrees, not aiding that, that, uh, that mission. And you mentioned like a fair bit ago that sometimes there are this like gang environments or, or mobs of people that come in from a different border and they're here to take a prize. And sometimes to kind of have a level of compassion to the poachers, this is their, their salary and that's what they need to feed the family. So I can't really give them too much hate, even though they're doing an, un- again, like you said, we don't, we can't really discuss the ethics because it is very gray, but these women, how much danger are they in? Uh, it's a very dangerous job. Uh, you know, it is an extremely dangerous job. Uh, and the biggest danger isn't just the, the poachers they're trying to stop. It's actually the animals they're trying to protect. Uh, some of the most dangerous, dangerous animals on the planet um, and in, in tough, hostile, remote locations. So when things go wrong, there's no ruby slippers. You can tap and just go home. You've got to get out there and, and make shit right in the middle of nowhere. Uh, uh, so, you know, while we can hope for the best in our training, we prepare them for the worst, uh, from survival training right through to hand-to-hand combat, um, and weapons training. Uh, it's not something that we hope they have to use, um, uh, ever or, 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 or often in their, in their daily jobs. Uh, and actually in the, the several hundred arrests that the, uh, the women, just the, the teams in Zimbabwe have made, uh, by the women of Akashinga, there's only been shots fired once and they were just warning shots. Well, wow, it's incredible. We can definitely count that as luck and hope that that continues forward. Um, I want to switch gears for a second to you. Um, so you're vegan and have been for a while. Oh, well, to start off, do you identify as someone who's vegan or are you just someone who follows a plant-based diet and ethos? Uh, someone that just doesn't like to fuck with animals. Yeah, I don't have it. Does, I don't, yeah. Have, um, it's not really, a, yeah, either or, mate. Yeah. It yeah. Doesn't, yeah I, don't, I don't get too wrapped around the axles with it. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. Um, a lot of the time, like, I guess some people will be a bit surprised to hear that considering, well, I guess we can talk about masculinity for a moment. Um, I mean, a lot of the time, especially growing up, like I can definitely relate, you know, being a man means eating a steak. That kind of mentality um, is something I'm sure you can also relate to in a lot of ways. Where does your mind go? What perspective do you have when you hear something like, like being vegans for girls or, you know, be a man, that kind of thing? Um, Yeah. You know, I mean, I can say this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an alpha male. I grew up that way. It was the way I was programmed. Uh, and I think there's a place for us in society to try and do good um, with with the mindset we've been given. And that, you know, part of that is to protect. And those that need protection are those that are the, the most vulnerable. And, uh, and animals uh, sit neatly up at the top of that category. So, and why would you want to, why would you want to hurt something that can't defend itself? Or why would you want to pay someone else to go and do it for you? Um, and I, you know, I've been the, I've been the hunter. Uh, and I've been the hunted. Uh, it's just not something I want to be a part of in either way either, anymore. So, um, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, why, why would you want to fuck with something that can't defend itself? It's a pretty simple mm. equation for me. How do, do you often find, like, you, you work with communication actually a fair bit, you know, communicating with, with the Akashingas on educating 
or I guess yeah. educating is, is the proper word on like the health, the environment and the ethical standpoint there. Do you have like a certain, is saying like, don't just don't screw with it. Is that your main, do you think that's the main way to be effective as to why someone should reduce or eliminate animal protein from their diet and lifestyle? So where do you usually go when you're starting to have that conversation with someone? Oh, look, it's it's about personal choices, and look for me. You know, I can't. I'm not going to sit up here on a pedestal and 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 uh, say how you know perfect and all that I am and my life choices are because they're not. You know, it took years for me to become vegetarian, and then and then another year to go vegan, uh, and even since going vegan, you know, I've I've, you know, I've I've never gone back and eaten meat. But you know, I've come in drunk at three o'clock in the morning and made a cheesy omelette before and. You know, I often think we're our worst enemies because, you know, in, in, many, in the eyes of many in our movement, you know, that's just like it's a red flag or it's, it's like, oh, you know, you're fucking, you're out of the club. And it, it's not, it shouldn't be like that. And I think we scare so many people off even coming close to considering a change to veganism or even a transition towards it just because we're so militant in our beliefs. And those beliefs are well-founded and they're there for the right reasons because we're passionate about what we do. But when we become so... Um, so hardcore in, in, in the way we approach things, then uh, uh, we, 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 we tend to isolate ourselves um, from what could be a much wider audience. Um, so my advice to, to people out there is involved with the industry that often feel frustrated uh, because we get it. You know, we get it. Uh, you know, we're trying, when we're trying to motivate other people, it's, it's like keep, keep practicing your conversations, keep getting better at them because the truth it's accumulative. Uh, it adds up. And for me, it took uh, years and years um, of people getting in my ear and saying this and saying that. And it was all adding up and it was eating away at my conscience. And eventually, uh, the shutters came up. And once they came up, I'll never go down again. Uh, you know, this, this is who I am. Uh, it's, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, some, some people may change overnight. Some people it might take a decade or a lifetime, uh, but just keep having those conversations and don't be disheartened by, by someone that tells you to fuck off or, you know, they've got a different point of view or whatever it may be because, you know, that, that conversation, it does stick. Yeah. Would you say that last point that you just mentioned, is that why, like, I get the sense that you think or you believe that militancy doesn't work in terms of effectively communicating and changing someone's mind. Would you would you agree with that? Ah, look, I mean, it works for some people. Um, yeah, it's probably uh, it was probably like one of the aspects of it that got through more to me. Uh, you know, but it doesn't work for everyone. Some people don't want to see that shit. They'll just you know flick it off, turn it off straight away. So it's you know it's it's varying messaging messaging approaches. Uh, Different things appeal to different people, different audiences, different em- demographics. Uh, so, yeah, you know, whatever your specialty is, just get like, you know, get uh, get get really good at it and uh, and keep doing it. Yeah, I love it. And then let's switch gears to the last thing we kind of really like talking about on this show, which is which is climate change. And from your vantage point, I, I guess I could switch that word to environmentalism in general. How do you? How do you pertain to what you're doing as, I guess what I want to say is poaching, how would you, is that even bad for the environment? And could you kind of run through why that is bad for the environment? So, I mean, look, it's, it's not, for us, it's not just about species or parks. It's, it's about these landscapes and, and the richness of biodiversity that's within them. 
the protection of that and the understanding that the protection of, of, of biodiversity and mass is what us as a civilization depends on for survival. Uh, so if you drag that back into to our, our current global narrative where we're going with, with climate change and, and, and pandemics, as I said, you know, we, we, uh, we can't afford to keep treating nature as a garbage dump. Uh, we can't afford to keep thinking that we are uh, on top of the food chain because we're not. You know, we you know we're part of a system that is that is breaking, it's failing, and it's it's starting to to, to shake its tail. And uh, it's a system that's been around a lot longer than us, and it's a system that will survive us. Uh, nature is not the endangered one here; it's it's us. Uh, and if we don't understand that, then we're gone. Mm. That's that's a really powerful way to think about it. Um, I want to service those who have listened to this whole conversation that we've had. They're like, okay, these action women, they're like, this is what I want to do. This is my purpose. What it, Can someone even become a ranger like that? Like I'm assuming you can't walk in there with your gun, with your, I've done my jujitsu when I was three years old. You can't just rock up and just yeah. do your thing there. Uh, look, 95% of our staff come from within 20 kilometers of the boundary of the area that we protect. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's a very, very local, uh, locally driven program, um, working with indigenous communities. Uh, you know, the best way people can, can impact their environment uh, is look at the way they live, understand that, that doing a few good things don't give us a, a bunch of credits to go and do bad shit in our lives. Uh and um, yeah, just look about evolving as we are as humans and individuals and, and, uh, and making changes along the way, continuously trying to do something better or be someone better. Uh, and for us at the moment, in terms of what we need to do as a global community, particularly those that have ch- children or, or have family that has children or friends that have children, you know, like what sort of place are we going to leave them? Uh, you know, and it's we, we, we keep saying, oh, it's all right, the next generation is going to fix it up. Whether you're 90 years old or nine years old, it's everyone's responsibility. We all need to be a part of this solution. Uh, we all need to be sw- swimming in the same direction. Mm, you know what? You kind of answered my last question just there, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Uh, I like to finish the conversations with just giving the guests the stage for one to two minutes to leave us with a nugget or two of just wisdom. So I want you to rack your brain for a moment, Damien, and I want you to leave us with your words of wisdom that you want someone to take away. It could be something in regards to this conversation that we've just had, or it could be something completely irrelevant, but the stage is all yours for a minute or two. So I I suppose um, just to... The best way to answer that is just a, a recap of my own journey, you know, coming from this position of, you know, being a youngster and bullied at school and then growing into this persona of, of being this tough guy, this enforcer that I had to live up to and then put myself through all these military courses and operations to to try and keep uh, fulfilling that prophecy um, to then really, I suppose, you know, Iraq has, it gives you a different lens through which to see the world being part of a system that had destabilized and destroyed a country and a culture. Um uh, and just being able to reflect on on what is right in life and what is wrong, and and I think uh, the ability always lies within us to to do these self audits and to make changes, and big changes can happen overnight. And uh, if we're not happy with our life or our purpose, and I think purpose is the most elusive thing in life. Um, many of us spend a lifetime trying to find it and, and never come close. But if you're not happy with where you're at, you just 
you know, go out and find it because it's out there. You know, there's so much stuff that can be done. And for me, it's it's actually it's almost like a, a drug. Um, uh, the more that we are able to seem to be able to do as an organisation, the more infectious that it becomes, and we want to do more and more of it. And and the good feeling that that gives us, as opposed to uh, you know some previous mindsets that I evolved through, um, I wouldn't change it. Mate, not for all the tea in China. Um, so, yeah, very happy. Go out and find your purpose, find your passion. Um, it's not going to be sitting under a rock out, outside your front door. Uh, you got to dig for it, uh, but it's out there. I love that. It, it is not, in fact, going to be sitting under a rock at your front door. What a lovely way to finish this conversation and round it all out. Uh, look, Damien, thank you so much for the absolute wisdom that you have left with us today. Um, and I want to extend a further thank you for the work you do. I think I can speak for everyone who listens to this, who watches this and is part of the community that the impact that you and IAPF is making on the environment at large that is most likely affecting the environment there, which is in turn affecting the environment on a global scale is not something to be reckoned with. The positive impact that you're leaving is very much appreciated by every single one of us and I do often say that the the animals can't speak English or any other human language for that matter so I can thank you on their behalf um, I'm sure they definitely thanks, appreciate mate. it thank more than much. we know no stress so thanks again for your time today Damien and I'll speak to you next time Tom thanks very much mate thanks very much to all your, all your listeners and in particular those at home in Melbourne I look forward to getting back there later this year cheers mate Hi there. Welcome to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening and or watching the whole way through. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Damien once again for coming on and sharing your wisdom. For anyone wanting to connect with him or learn a bit more about IAPF, I've left all the links to do so in the show notes. If you wanted to connect with us further, the best place to go is to Instagram at plant.paradigm and or sign up to our newsletter, The Monthly Paradigm. And you can do that by visiting theplantparadigm.com and entering your email address. With all that being said, I hope you have a fantastic week and I'll see you all on next week's episode. Stay happy, eat plants, peace.